back to the Palview Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the senior pastor here at Palview Christian Church in lovely, beautiful Central Oregon. I'm looking out my window right now, and it's just a gorgeous day. Uh, there are clouds in the sky, but it's just it's it's uh, one of those perfect spring days finally that we're getting. It's good to have you back with us. We're doing continuing our. Um, series on the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we are in chapter 6 still, uh, Sermon on the Plane, not the airplane, the level plane, and a lot of the concepts that we would have seen in the Sermon on the Mount we're going to see here in this shorter version of it in the book of Luke. Uh, but before we begin, I want to tell you a story that I ran across a long time ago. It was a great story about a young man, not real quick on the uptake, but a young man trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle, and he's stumped. He's stumped. His girlfriend comes in and says, "Hun, what, what are you uh, doing? You, you look kind of confused. And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I'm trying to put this uh, puzzle together. It's of a, it's, it's of a tiger. And, uh, but I have no idea where even to start. Well, she looks at all the pieces that he's scattered out on the, uh, on the dining room table. And she said, oh, well, hon, uh, I, I see why you're confused. First of all, I don't think that you're going to be able to put this jigsaw puzzle together. And second of all, w- would you please help me put the frosted flakes back in the cereal box? Funny story, I know, I know. And and there's actually a reason that I bring that up. Because again, we're, we're in the Gospel of Luke. And on the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus has just spent an all-nighter spending time praying to the Father and and selecting his apostles, and then it came down, and he wanted to teach his disciples about kingdom living, okay? And, and it's all about discipleship. It's all about learning how to walk the talk, if you will, because the religious leaders of Jesus's day, they would talk a big game, but the way that they actually lived, there was a gap, a gap between what they said they believed and what they actually did to live out what they believed. Now, for far too many Christians, even today, their spiritual lives are like that box of frosted flakes that cleverly disguised itself as a jigsaw puzzle, right? For them, they, they put the pieces out there and it just doesn't make sense. There's too many gaps. So many professing, professing Christians out there, they experience these gaps between the profession of faith and the practice of faith. And it confuses them. And it confuses the world as they're watching these Christians, now, in the end, it, it just doesn't make sense. And, and for the believer itself, when the storms of life hit, they're knocked for a loop. I wonder if that's maybe because they really didn't understand the big picture of what faith was supposed to be all about. They might think, well, faith is just about me getting to go to heaven, right? Conversion. Um, uh, you know, get out of hell free card, Right. And yet, when you read through the Gospels, uh, what Jesus teaches, it's, he is very clear. There, it's more than just mere conversion. The Great Commission did not tell us to go out and make converts. For Jesus, it was all about discipleship, following and becoming like the Master. Okay, That's what he's talking about when he says, hey, you need to love your enemies. You need to do what's unexpected. You need to go the extra mile. You need to live outside of yourself. You need to be committed to a generosity and, and an open heart and um, to living a godly lifestyle. See, it's not just about conversion. It's about discipleship. And as he concludes the Sermon on the Plain, he's going to conclude with two final analogies, fruit and foundations. 
And like all good sermons, I've been told, Jesus ends his sermon with an altar call. No, not an altar call with an A. Um, altar call, like come up to the altar, right? But an altar call, A-L-T-E-R, where one has to choose to let God alter our hearts and our life in order for us to really be a disciple. Jesus is saying, okay, I got my apostles now, and I, I've got a lot of people following me. But now that these people have heard about the kingdom, Jesus is saying, okay, here's the altar call. Who's in? Who really wants to change their life? Who really wants to be my disciple? I'm going to read uh, from chapter 6, um, verse 43, to the end of the uh, chapter. Jesus says, for no, good fruit, uh, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. How do you know? that you have a fake of something, something that's not real, something that's not genuine. You, you've heard probably that people who work with money all day, the way that they're trained to spot counterfeits is not by studying every single counterfeit bill that is out there, because there are far too many, and there are far too many ways of counterfeiting money. But they, they can detect the fake by knowing what the real thing looks like, it feels like, it smells like, right? So that just by handling the money, just by touching the money, uh, these people can actually tell which bill is real and which bill is fake. And also, just side note, you can be sure of this. If what you thought was a genuine Rolex watch, for example, but you had bought that genuine Rolex watch from in a parking lot from the back of a white cargo van for $35, you're probably, you don't probably have to wonder very much in that situation if it's real or right? Jesus is giving us a sure way of telling whether our faith is genuine or fake. First of all, just look at the fruit of your life. But even the fruit that is evidence, that's, that's there as evidence of the seed that has been planted, not just about the type of tree. So we're talking about seeds, we're talking about the type of tree, we're talking about what is developed in that tree, the, the kind of fruit. There are two indicators then of real faith. Uh, the condition of your heart, you know, this what seed has been planted in your heart. So your heart condition, and then what you produce, your obedience to the design and the DNA that God has put in, into you. So it's your heart and your life, your uh, your heart condition and your willful obedience. So we're going to break down what Jesus says just a bit. Again, verse 43, um, he begins with the word for. For no good tree, right? Well, that tells me that uh, you've got to go 
back to what he just said in order for you to understand this in context. For is an important word. It connects this analogy to what was just taught. Well, what was just taught? Well, he talked about being a hypocrite and telling uh, your brother, hey, let me take that little speck of sawdust out of your eye when all along you have this plank coming out of your eye. So hypocrisy is condemned. For, for, no good tree bears bad fruit. You see, you're going to get, you're, you're going to be found out through the evidence of your life, is what Jesus is saying. You, you can't fool God. No good tree will bear bad fruit, and a bad tree does not bear good fruit. Now, in a day where agriculture was one of the main sources of the economy, the use of trees and fruit, that's a very common analogy used throughout Scripture. For example, John 15, Jesus will tell us he's the vine and we are the branches. And if we remain in him, we will do the things that God has called us to do. But without our connection to him, the vine, we, the branches, cannot produce anything. We can do nothing. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul would pray that the believers in that church would be believers that would bear fruit. So it, it's a common analogy throughout Scripture. And here in Luke 6, Jesus is emphasizing the real issue. The real issue is, is one of fighting against the temptation of hypocrisy, which really comes down to this, knowing what kind of seed was planted, what kind of tree is growing, and what kind of fruit is going to be produced. What kind of tree are you claiming to be if your fruit does not show and match with what you have claimed to be, then there is, again, hypocrisy that Jesus is confronting. Now, again, what's intriguing is that Jesus actually ties it to the seed that's been planted. And then it grows into the evidence of the actual fruit. Um, I used to live in Elk Grove, California, just south of Sacramento. Got to help plant a church back in 2003, Life Point Christian Church. It's a great church. I got to be a part of that for eight years before God moved me on. But I uh, bought a house there in, uh, in part of Elk Grove, and th there was a tree in our backyard, and uh, we had no idea what kind of tree it was. For the first two years, the first couple seasons, we had no idea because it did not produce anything. There, there was uh, some buds on it, and then those buds would just kind of shrivel up and die. We, we didn't get anything. Uh, we didn't know what it was. But that third summer that we lived there, all of a sudden we knew without a doubt what it was it, because we had peaches for months, for months. Now, it's a good thing that I wasn't hoping for an apple tree or or an orange tree, right? It, it's a good thing that uh, I actually enjoy eating peaches. Um, so it was good that we had that, but we had no idea for a couple of seasons what it was. But once that fruit began to come out, I didn't have to be a tree expert to figure that one out. Jesus says, listen, it's not rocket science, folks. You will know what kind of person, like what kind of tree a person is by the fruit that grows out of their life, right? The, the, the way you can cut through hypocrisy, the, the kind of hypocrisy that we looked at last week, is by looking at the fruit of somebody's life, the actions, the values, the, the attitudes that are demonstrated day by day by day. Jesus is calling those who are listening to his teaching to have a, a, a method of self-examination. Check out what you're all about. Look at what you're doing. Look at your actions. Look at your attitudes. Look at the values. That's going to determine if you are a genuine disciple or a fake disciple. 
Now, Paul, later on in the New Testament, uh, gives us a different context in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Galatians 5 is where the fruit of the Spirit is listed out. He, he begins by saying, you know, that the work or the, the fruit of the flesh is very evident. And then he gives this long list of sins uh, that, that show if you're a bad tree, essentially. But then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's work in your life is love which is, you know, sacrificial living and joy, even though there's really no, <clears throat> nothing in your life that uh, would produce happiness. And, and there's a lot of struggles that you have, there can be joy and peace, peace when you're afraid and patience and in times of hardship and kindness and goodness, when you, there are, is no expectation of uh, return at all. Faithfulness, which has been described as a long obedience in the same direction. And gentleness, where you are allowing God's Spirit to guide you and move you. And then finally, self-control, because you are becoming more and more like Jesus. And though the uh, flesh is weak, that spirit begins to kind of take over and allow your flesh to make the right kinds of decisions. And then Paul says, against those things, there is no such law. There's no law. It, it has been said that Jesus never sat still long enough for anyone to paint a portrait of him. Now, we have pictures, quote-unquote, pictures of Jesus. Well, that's basically people imagining what Jesus would have looked like. Uh, and in fact, we're discovering in the 21st century that much of our concept of what Jesus looked like is based more on the religious art of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period than what a real first-century Jewish man would have looked like. But the Bible tells us it doesn't matter what he looked like, right? Isaiah prophesied that he would have no physical beauty in him, that we would be attracted to him, that we would want to follow him because he was, you know, he looked like Brad Pitt, for example. But what we do have is a portrait here painted by Paul in Galatians 5. It's, it's a portrait of Jesus, of his character. The fruit of the Spirit is really the most perfect picture that we have of Jesus. That, and I would also say 1 Corinthians 13, where we talk about what love is. You want to know what Jesus looked like? What his character looked like? Check out 1 Corinthians 13 and look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So as Christians, by the way, a term that was uh, used to, uh, was first a kind of a derogatory term, Christian means little Christ. Little Christ. Well, we are called to be like Christ. A servant will be like his master. Okay? So if the fruit of the Spirit characterizes Jesus's life, then they, it needs to be a portrait of what you and I look like as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless like Jesus, nor is all the fruit going to appear just at one time. It's, it's more of a gradual process, right? But very consistent. And it's going to mean that what God wants to do in us, that fruit that he wants to produce, will grow in us. And it's the fruit, then, that shows that we're a good tree. We are new creations according to the scripture. That means we're no longer bad trees. We're good trees planted uh, with a new and better seed. If you go back to verse 45 again, it says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Now the issue is the new seed then that's planted in a new heart that produces new work. If there is no work, no good fruit, then one can make a case that there was really no new tree. And if there was no new tree, you could also then take that back to say that there was no new tree because there was no new seed that had been planted. In other words, if your heart has not been 
renewed, regenerated. You cannot expect on your own to produce the fruit that God has designed us to bear. So we start with the seed, with the condition of your heart, the, the control center, if you will, for a regenerated life. In fact, I love Proverbs 4.23 that says, guard your heart above else, above all else. Why? Because it determines the course of your life. If it's good seed, it's very likely that if you continue to nourish that growth process, you're going to be showing people good fruit. If it's a bad seed, then conversely, it's going to be bad fruit. The, the real mark of a Christian is not about where you were born or how you were raised or even what church you go to or even how often you go to church, right? It's the condition of your heart. Is your heart bent on the things of God or is it still hardened and unmoldable and set toward self-centeredness and stubborn willfulness to satisfy your own cravings, your own sinful nature. What we need is regeneration, which is exactly what the Old Testament prophets foresaw as what was going to need to happen if we were going to have a right relationship with God. Ezekiel, for example, 36, 26, Ezekiel says, uh, he's using God's words here, he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So the Old Testament prophets, they foresaw that this was what was needed in order for us to really truly be disciples. Not fake disciples, but genuine disciples. See, when one's heart changes, then one's worldview is changed as well. And the things that you used to have no interest in become very, very, very important to you. In youth ministry, I used to have the privilege of going to all three camps during the summer. I would go to junior camp fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I would go to middle school camp, seventh and eighth grade, and then I'd go to high school camp, ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth. And of course, I, I would be with the boys most of the time. And it was so, it was really uh, funny <clears throat> that the difference between the junior camp, middle school camp, and high school camp, uh, the, the attitude that the boys had with um, the showers, right? course, the junior campers, uh, by Wednesday, you just had to throw them in the pool because they would not take a shower at all. They didn't care what they smelled like. They didn't even know that they smelled bad. Middle schoolers got a little bit more uh, self-conscious and they wouldn't want to go into the showers because, you know, somebody might see them change or something like that. So uh, uh, you would definitely uh, uh, want to encourage them to take showers. And, and uh, so a lot of those kids would take showers at night after everybody else uh, was in the, the cabin so that they wouldn't get, uh, you know, they wouldn't have to change in front of anybody. But I tell you, those same kids, once they get into high school, once those boys notice what the girls are, you know, and they want to impress the girls, their heart has changed uh, with an attitude towards those showers. And now it's like, man, they are up before the sun those high school kids and they're going and they're, they're scrubbing down, they're putting on the cologne, they're, they're, they're making sure that they're using soap. It really makes a difference where your heart is, right? When your heart changes, your worldview changes. So that's kind of where God, where, where Jesus begins by saying, okay, let's talk about the heart first. Then once that heart changes, the next thing that Jesus says is very groundbreaking because there's this radical connection between what Jesus uh, between, okay, sorry, there's a rad radical connection that Jesus makes. And, and it's this connection that builds this bridge to cover the gap 
the, the gap between what I say I believe and what and how I really live. Okay, there is a bridge that can cover that gap, and it's a connection that Jesus will make elsewhere in the Gospels. John fourteen, verse fifteen. Jesus said this to his disciples. Listen, here, here's here's the bridge. Here's where to go from what, what I say I believe to what I actually do with my life. Ready? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Ouch. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a pretty solid statement. You can't get around that one. Can't get around that one. It's pretty black and white. The bridge between our profession of faith and our practice of faith, what starts with a, a renewed, regenerated heart, and then will eventually end up in, in, in a changed life and being a real disciple, is our willingness. It's our willingness to follow the commands. The bridge that spans the gap between what I say I believe and what I really do is a, a willful obedience. And it's all based on love. Do I love? And then if I do love, I will keep his commands. If you go back to verse 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's just a profession of faith, right? And do not do what I tell you, which is a practice of faith. Why? Because you are not willing to obey. And that may be because you really don't have the heart to obey. Now, a lot of people, this is this is what their faith is based on, is just saying, Lord, Lord. Saying a prayer, Lord, Lord, I, I, I believe in you. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again. So therefore, I'm, I'm all good, right? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. You just got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? Right? Isn't that what that says? <sighs> you can't miss this, guys. There is an implication of what that verse says that a lot of Christians do not get. They don't really make the connection. You see, watch this. Follow me on this. If you are confessing with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. That means you are bringing it out into the open. You are, you are saying it out loud. You are not hiding it. You're not being secretive about it. You are confessing with your mouth. You are confessing with your mouth, what? That he is Lord, which means you are confessing with your mouth. You're making it very plain, very open, very public, that he is the one in charge of your life. By confessing he is Lord, it's not those words that save you. Jesus is Lord. Because the demons can say Jesus is Lord, but they don't mean it, right? So it's not just confessing with your mouth, just those words that is going to bring salvation. It's actually the submission to that confession that he really is Lord, which is shown by the change in one's heart to actually want to live in willful obedience to the Lord. Okay? I'm hoping you're, you're, you're tracking with me. Let me give you an example. A lot of people wonder about baptism. You know, uh, if we are saved by grace through faith, uh, well then, 
baptism shouldn't really be a part of it that people think. Um, because baptism, does it really save you? Is there something sacred, something magical about the water that brings about salvation? Uh, that's a hotly debated subject and has been for a long, long time. Because on one side of the, the issue, you'll, you'll see that in the book of Acts, there's not one instance of an unbaptized believer. Okay? If they were a believer, they were baptized. Okay? But on the other hand, on the other side of that issue, there's this event in the, the life of the early church in the book of Acts, where Peter had visited Cornelius and, and this uh, the Gentile family here, and the Holy Spirit comes upon that group of Gentiles. They had professed faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit had come upon them. There was no doubt. They had the Holy Spirit upon uh, professed faith in Jesus, okay? They had the Holy Spirit. And you could then easily come to the conclusion that these Gentile believers with the Holy Spirit were probably saved. And yet it was after the Holy Spirit came upon them, immediately afterwards, albeit, that the Apostle Peter, who was there, had this insight. Wow, these people have the Holy Spirit. Maybe we should baptize them too. So they received the Holy Spirit, and then immediately they obeyed by being baptized. Immediately. Now, they didn't wait six weeks to learn about baptism. They, uh, they didn't base their decision to get baptized on whether they thought they were ready or not for that kind of commitment. It was an immediate obedience. Jesus commands us to baptize believers, baptize disciples. So these people here in the, the book of Acts, they became believers and they were immediately baptized as a sign of their salvation. So that's baptism. But I encounter people all the time who they refuse to be baptized. And if somebody says, well, Jesus is Lord, I've confessed him with my mouth that he is Lord. But when then the Lord says, now be baptized, and they say, no, nah, I don't need to be baptized in order to be a Christian. Well, I would say uh, that you are treading on very thin ice. Because if you refuse to obey, have you really confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Or did you just say the words? To say something puts it out there publicly for all to hear. It's your testimony. And that's actually what an obedient life is, is a testimony to your loyalty, to your allegiance, to your willingness to submit to a higher authority, to have a different Lord than what the world has. So when a saved person says, well, I don't believe I have to be baptized, Again, this is just one example, but it's a real example that I encounter from time to time. Then that saved person who just thinks it's a matter of belief and a simple confession with their mouth, simply saying the words, they have to explain how Jesus can be their Lord by their own admission, by their own confession, but they don't think it's important to actually submit to his commands as Lord. And if they're not submitting to his commands as Lord, is he Lord really of their life? Have they truly confessed with their mouth that he is Lord? I could argue that in a sense, they really have not confessed with their mouth that he is Lord. And if they have, then that confession is contradicted by their lifestyle, their disobedience. So Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you a picture of what that is like what kind of shaky foundation that is to say that you believe something. Call him Lord, but do not do what he says. 
And that's the image then that he concludes this whole thing with, with about two guys who are building a house, one who digs deep and lays a foundation on a rock, and then one who builds his foundation on a, or builds the house on the ground without foundation. In both cases, folks, there is um, there's a storm, there's a flood, there are swelling streams. The difficulties in life are similar in both instances. That, that's not the difference. Life happens to both of them. The floods happen to both of them. The difference, obviously, is the foundation. And if you go back to the whole gap uh, analogy, the foundation is dependent on uh, both your heart and your willingness to, to be obedient, to, to bridge the gap between what I say I believe and what I actually, how I live. Now, about five years ago, my wife Jenny and I, we were kind of in a predicament. She had had a house down in Sun River, a house that she had lived in for almost 20 years, and it was time uh, for us to, to move, to sell it. And, but there was a problem. And, and a lot of men from the, uh, my congregation here, actually, they tried to help fix the problem. See, it looked like there was standing water underneath the house. And if you wanted to get a bank loan to buy that house, the, you would run into that inspection problem. Because they would come out and they would see this water underneath the house. And they'd say, you have to get rid of the water. But you couldn't get rid of the water because it wasn't truly standing water. It was actually flowing in from probably an underground stream. Okay, It was moving. But that didn't matter. Because it looked like there was a shaky foundation. Okay, And so the value of the house was, was hurt. Okay. The value of the structure was connected to the reliability of the foundation. And so we had to see that uh, really the house had uh, no resale value, really, not for anybody who needed to get a loan in order to buy the house. See, the value of our faith in the same way lies in our foundation. The value of our faith lies in our foundation. And for those who have not bridged the gap between professing faith and practicing faith, you cannot be absolutely assured that your faith is real. It's like you got your faith from a from a white cargo van in a parking lot for quite quite a bargain. All I had to do was say, Jesus is Lord. Lord, Lord. Now I have my fire insurance. Now I, I got my get out of hell free card. That's not what Jesus is calling disciples, folks. He's not calling us into the bare minimum just to cover our rear end with a kind of religiosity. So here's the bottom line for us. Everyone is building on something or somebody. And the real test to know if you've chosen well or not are the times of the flooding and the swelling streams in life, the storms that will come. If your faith only sets your eyes on what happens to you after you die, you have missed the sweetness of what God wants to do in you right now on this side of death. When life is easy, it's hard to understand or to see what a, a person's foundation is. But when those storms hit, when troubles come, we find out if your profession of faith has actually brought you to practice of faith. Now, we know one day, and we don't know when that day will come, big storms will come into our life. Jesus promised us that in this world, we will have trouble. That's what happens when you live in a fallen world, a world that's groaning for the day that it's going to be redeemed, just like the sons of God. Those who have been built on Jesus, those who have heard his word and actually then begin to put them into practice because those words pierced our hard hearts and our hearts are now pouring forth good and godly things. And, and now we are walking in obedience by the spirit of God. 
by the Spirit of God, then, by the power of God, we will have the strength to withstand the storm. We'll have a different perspective. So Jesus concludes his message with an altar call, an altar call, saying, I, I want you to alter the seed that has been planted. I want you to alter the kind of tree that you are. I want you to alter the kind of fruit you produce. I want you to alter the foundation that you are going to build your life upon. Not to just call him Lord, but to actually build your life on a firm belief that his ways are best. And so you will obey. That you will obey and you won't put it off and say, well, when I'm ready to obey, I will. So I want to issue an altar call to us today as well. There's a story of a house built in Scotland in 1770. There's a guy named Thomas Hill. He left his cottage and he took with him a pick and a chisel and a hammer and a desire to build a solid home. He, he chose this rocky face of a cliff that was overlooking this beautiful valley. It was his dream. It took him 16 years to build. And, and what he eventually completed was this magnificent fortress, which was strong and beautiful, ready to stand against the, the forces of nature and time. But it came at a cost, folks. Discipleship comes at a cost. Time and energy, submitting our will to God. It takes discipline to know the scriptures takes submission to the authority of Jesus in all aspects of our life. And it's a, it takes a willingness to risk it all, to be vulnerable, and to allow people to know what we're struggling with. But it's worth it. Our faith depends on it. A real faith that brings a real salvation. There is that wonderful hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, which, by the way, is his authority. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I do pray that you actually have a genuine faith, uh, faith that's real and uh, will keep you from uh, that sinking sand uh, so that uh, what God wants to do in your life, you will be able to stand through the storms and uh, to be able to stand as a witness. All right. Well, that's uh, what I would love for you to know about this week. Um, Again, I'd like to thank uh, Lisa Welly, my executive producer, for putting these uh, podcasts up on all of the podcast platforms. I want to thank Steve Pittman for being the, the tech guru here at uh, Palview Christian Church. And, uh, I just want to thank you for you tuning in each week and, and listening to what is going on here. If you ever find yourself in Central Oregon on a weekend, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. And uh, we're at Palview Christian Church in the, the beautiful community of Palview, Oregon. So. May God bless you, and may you have a great week this week. Talk to you later.